ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, the eyes of the world are focused on the town of Rafah on the Gaza-Egypt border, a place where more than a million desperate Palestinians with nowhere else to go have been sheltering from the conflict. There were hopes that a high-level ceasefire negotiation would halt Israel pl- Israel's plans to mount a ground invasion into Rafah, described as the last safe place in the Gaza Strip. But those negotiations have been suspended and now a powerful military operation seems imminent. World leaders have made increasingly shrill shrill statements directed at Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, sometimes begging him not to go ahead with the ground war, given the dire humanitarian situation and the lack of any plans to protect civilians, many of whom have been displaced now more than five times. Dr Aaron David Miller has been a player in the Middle East negotiations in the past. He worked in the US State Department as an analyst, negotiator and advisor on US policy in the Middle East and the Arab-Israel peace process, most recently as the senior advisor for Arab-Israeli negotiations. He's now a senior fellow these days at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Aaron David Miller, thank you very much for joining us on Sunday Extra. Uh, thanks, Fran. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu this week declared that the Israel Defence Forces will mount will mount a powerful operation in Rafah. It's hard to see how that would be anything but catastrophic for the estimated 1.4 million Palestinians sheltering there. Is there anything more that the international community can do or say or should do or say to restrain Netanyahu? Yeah. You know, I think, we, friend, we forget one central fact which has been evident since the beginning of this crisis on October 7, and that is that the Middle East is littered, literally littered, with the remains of great powers and smaller ones who believe they could somehow impose their will, their schemes, their dreams, their plans on smaller ones. And the reality is, and it's hard for the international, the vaunted international community to accept, is that very, in, very infrequently do external powers have the influence and the capacity to alter the trajectory of parties in conflict, particularly when those parties perceive to be their perceive their vital national security interests, or in the case of Hamas, it's literally, it's the physical existence of the three leaders who planned the October 7th stage at at stake. So the answer is that even the United States, Israel's foremost ally and chief benefactor, uh, and an American president that has demonstrated an extraordinary degree of support for Israel, is either unwilling or unable um, to use the levers available to him, in large part because I think they've concluded uh, they wouldn't work. And and using those levers, what do you mean? You know, I mean, I know that the the big ticket item is that Joe Biden is still refusing to stop the sale or or the um, sending of U.S. weapons to to Israel. Is that what you're talking about when you say using the yeah, levers? I'm, yeah, I mean, I worked for Republicans and Democratic administrations. It's a rare president. Biden is not the, the the exception here. It's a rare American president that's prepared to sustain an open public breach with an Israeli prime minister. It's awkward, it's messy, it, it can be politically costly, and it's usually but not always counterproductive. And yeah, the levers that he could pull are clear. He could slow walk, restrict, or even cancel uh, badly needed U.S. military assistance to Israel, particularly munitions delivery. He could impose conditions on the use of that assistance. He could change America's voting posture in, in New York 
abstaining or voting for a UN Security Council resolution or not standing in the way of a UN General Assembly resolution. And so why doesn't or, he? So why hasn't he? I think it's a, it's a combination of factors. It's, number one, the president emotional identification with Israel, mm-hmm. with the idea of Israel, the people of Israel, the security of Israel, not so much with Mr. Netanyahu and the current extremist Israeli government. That's one reason. Number two, he's treading a very fine political line between a Republican party that has established itself as the Israel can do no wrong party on one hand and a deeply divided uh, Democratic party. And number three, which I think is the real reason, is that he knows that if U.S. policy has any chance of succeeding, it's got to get an Israeli-Hamas hostage mm. deal. That is the only thing that will de-escalate Israel's military campaign, free the hostages, allow humanitarian assistance to surge into Gaza, and to create a point of departure over time for a some sort of political solution. If he turns the prime minister of Israel into a pariah or starts to go figuratively speaking to war with him, there's no way Netanyahu is going to do that deal. And that deal, which I believe is coming, uh, hopefully before the Israelis turn their attention to Rafa, um, might actually provide the, the first instance of a way out of this. Why do you believe the deal is coming? Because Benjamin Netanyahu so far pulled his te- has pulled his team back from the ceasefire negotiations in Cairo this week. You know, things appear from the outside to be going backwards in terms of the conflict and any ceasefire negotiations. I mean, are you surprised no. at Netanyahu's intransigence or you think he will come to the table? Well, remember, this is not one hand clapping. This is a situation, and, and let's remember, let's remind ourselves who we're dealing with here. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're dealing with the most extreme right-wing government in Israel's history, but you're also dealing with an organization uh, that's the embodiment of an idea, which is the destruction of Israel and its replacement by an Islamic state. Mm-hmm. Organization that raped, pillaged, murdered, willfully and intentionally, indiscriminately and statistically, and then grabbed 240 people, 134 of them who remain particularly the women who will have stories to tell if they're ever released, with 30 of the 134 who either died on October 7 and were taken by Hamas into Gaza to trade or died in captivity. So this is not a negotiation between Israel and Egypt over a piece of territory or between Israel and Syria. This is a this is a very fraught situation for an American president. So I just think, you know, and, and why do negotiations succeed, Fran? They, they succeed when the pain and the urgency on both parties uh, basically are outweighed by the prospects of gain. And we have not seen either Hamas or Israel, this government, um, reach a point where it's prepared to make these decisions on the duration of the humanitarian pause or the cessation of hostilities on the number of Israeli prisoners, excuse me, Palestinian prisoners that the Israelis will have to release asymmetrically, probably 10 to 1, uh, or on the um, phases of releasing hostages for prisoners. So it's a tough negotiation. I think the threat against Rafa may, may produce some leverage on the part of Hamas. It's clear that Yahya Sinwar and the other two lieutenants who planned October 7 are either in Khan Yunus in tunnels or, or, or in Rafah. 
And, uh, you know, I think the Israelis are using the threat of an, uh, of an imminent attack, and it is by no means imminent. We're talking weeks here, weeks before the Israelis would mount any kind of ground campaign, and then they'd have to figure out what to do with one one million people. Which seems unfathomable, really, how that could happen. And yeah. that's why all the world leaders are lining up to, you know, to say publicly this would be catastrophic. Obviously, it would. Um, yes. I'm interested on why you're so confident it would be weeks away, given we saw in our news last night the sort of the the lines of tanks heading that way. But but that aside, I mean, you are no stranger to peace negotiations. You've been at the in the room in the past. Um why why do you have such confidence ultimately for a ceasefire negotiation given that you know Hamas has been under pressure from country certain countries Israel's under such pressure um how far apart are the parties and their deals on the table you know th- first of all this is a negotiation that, that that the US is is using through cutouts and the communication with Hamas is mysterious frankly how they are communicating how the external leadership that is clearly a, a trend, transmitting messages to to a Hamas leadership that is ensconced meters below ground uh, without the Israelis identifying through SIGIN, through their signal intelligence, exactly where these leaders are. How that is taking place is, is truly a mystery to me, but it's slowing down the process. Each side has demands. Look, I, I'm, you know, I'm not... Uh, Pithy of the Oracle of Delphi. All I'm <laughs> suggesting to you is that I'm reasonably confident that a deal uh, can be done, and it can be done in the next several weeks. I do think each side has a lot to gain. Mr. Netanyahu is increasingly under pressure from hostage families. He has a war cabinet in addition to the right-wing extremist government, composed of the former Israeli Minister of Defense Benny Gantz, who. Um, I, I think would probably leave the government if the Israelis uh, had an offer that was reasonable in terms of how many pris- Palestinian prisoners they'd have to release over what period of time. So Mr. Netanyahu is not, a, is not a lone actor here. He's subject to the same kinds of pressures. As far as Sin- Yaki Sinwar, the architect of, architect of October 7, he wants to come out of this alive. And the longer the Israelis operate, down there in in the constricted space with respect to Hamas's leadership, the greater the chance that they can find him. And I think that has got to be motivating Sinwar as well. So no one can read the future and no one, Fran, ever lost money betting against Arab-Israeli peace. Sure. But my sense is that uh, by, by, by Ramadan, in the first 10 days of March, I think there's a reasonable chance we can actually have a deal. And then this conflict will go into yet another phase. You um, wrote in Foreign Policy last week that the twin goals of destroying Hamas's military organisation and freeing the hostages are now increasingly at odds with one another. So that does make you wonder why Netanyahu, given the pressure he's under from you know, diplomatic pressure, but also from at home, you know, is still sticking so intensely to these guns. But if you are right, if there is a some kind of ceasefire deal that takes place in March 
perhaps, if the invasion of Rafa does not occur, then we get to the next phase, which is also being talked about now, which Netanyahu is steadfastly standing against, which is negotiations for a two-state solution. Now, as I say, you've been at the table for these kind of Arab-Israeli peace talks before. You were there in Camp David in 2000. And you've said in the past that, you know, you need the right leaders in place for any hope of this. I mean, do we have the right leaders at the moment with the Hamas leadership or Mahmoud Abbas, if, if, that's, if that's the player in the room, and Benjamin Netanyahu? Is that even possible? Graham, I know you know the answer to this question, but I'll, I'll give it to you. <laughs> I thought I'd get you to say it. I'll give it to you straight. No, we do not. What you need to deal with a conflict-ending solution to the Israeli-Palestinian problem, and the least the least worst solution is, is two states, separation through negotiation. It is the only approach that can deal with the demographic, political, and psychological realities and challenges that govern both Israelis and Palestinians. You need leaders who are masters of their political houses, not prisoners of their ideologies. I mean, I'd, I'd mentioned Nelson Mandela and Frederick Clerk here, or I'd settle for an Anwar Sadat and a Menachem Begin, or a King Hussein and former Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. What you have now and what you're going to have is two traumatized communities, Israelis and Palestinians, led by individuals, Mahmoud Abbas, 88 years old, in the 19th year of a four-year term, and Benjamin Netanyahu on trial for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust in a Jerusalem district court, district court who are much more interested in keeping their seats and maintaining power than making any historic transfer formational decisions that are likely to be incredibly um, controversial, given where we are. My real concern about this long term is that Israelis and Palestinians are going to emerge from this parade of horrors that we've witnessed. Okay. And the answer to the question is going to be not that we don't understand one another, but we understand one another only too well. Not a lot of hope in that statement. Aaron David Miller, thank you very much for joining us. Brand, great questions. Pleasure to be here. Aaron David Miller is a former Israel-Arab uh, negotiator for the US and advisor on US policy on the Middle East and Arab-Israel peace process. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.